You are listening to Studying Pixels, a hidden podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about hidden mechanics because games really are interesting and peculiar black boxes. You push some kind of button on, on a controller and then on the screen something happens in some relation to some effect. Yes, and who knows exactly why or what or when? <laughs> These are the things that we learn when we play the game. And what kind of tricks the game might be playing on you. Often, for example, to make the game more exciting, to make it more spectacular, more satisfying, or even sometimes with pretty severe narrative consequences. Just things that the game entirely conceals from you and you don't know that it's happening in the background. We have a few examples of this, and one of my favorite things is when a hidden mechanic is revealed to you, and it's almost as if you found an entirely different game in the game. Like, you've opened up the, the metagaming aspect of it, you're able to min-max, or maybe there's an entire new system that you weren't aware of. Now, I will say this. We've talked before about how having too many systems can sometimes be a burden in games, at least for us at, <laughs> in our old age, I guess. Yeah. But... I do find that these are separate from that because they're so cool and it's not like you have to use them a lot of the time. Yeah, there's at least one of them that we're going to be talking about just as a brief teaser where I think it's overkill. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But we're going to get to that in a second. These hidden mechanics, we compiled them and they were mostly, but not only, but mostly based on originated from a tweet by Jennifer Sherl who is a game developer and tweeted out asking fellow game developers about their hidden mechanics that they've used in games. Jennifer wrote an article about that that we've also linked up in our show notes. And we're going to go over them. We collected a couple of additional ones, a couple that stood out to us that we had interesting experiences with. And some of them you will probably be familiar with, or maybe you have engaged with them unknowingly so. <laughs> a little mystery. The mystery continues. <laughs> well, if you like this show, I just want to say that up front, and you want to help us make it happen, then you can, of course, support us by joining Studying Pixels Plus, which is our Patreon campaign. There, you will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. Sometimes these plus episodes are deep dives into video game culture or a specific series. Other times, they actually help you study, write a term paper, write a thesis, and so on. If you're curious about that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And here we are talking about hidden mechanics in video games. They are in no particular order. We just threw everything we could find together in a sheet. And one thing that is the first one that came to my mind, and probably the one that most people have engaged with, is the so-called Coyote Time. Are you familiar with the, the Roadrunner cartoons? Yes, Wiley Coyote. Because I haven't heard about this one. But if I understand correctly, it's basically the fact that you can kind of change direction in midair is this is this what we're talking about or is it different from that it's a little bit different that what you mean is a uh, kind of like air control yeah which is also the case but that's very noticeable in many video games right where you can in super mario when you jump normally in real life the moment your feet lift off the ground you have very little control if any at all over the trajectory of your jump because it's already determined whereas in many video games you can change direction mid-air but the coyote time is actually different do you know these sequences in wily e. coyote and the roadrunner when the coyote would like run over the edge of a cliff and then run in the air for a couple more seconds before he falls. Yes, yes, okay. That's what it's <laughs> named after. The coyote time appears usually in jump and run games where you have to do precisely timed jumps off of platforms and it gives you a little bit of like an invisible window of extra jump off timing so that if you leave the platform, then you still have like half a step where you can still jump off the platform. That's funny. I, I think, like with a lot of these, that's one of those, like, you didn't notice it, but your brain did yeah. <laughs> kind of mechanics. I have to tell you a story. When I was a kid and I watched all of the Looney Tunes, I spent probably an afternoon, I must have been five or six years old, I spent an afternoon running off my couch trying to do the coyote. To get the coyote, <laughs> the coyote time. Jump. <laughs> and did yeah. you get it? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I didn't defy physics when I was a kid. <laughs> boy, I wish I had. <laughs> well, you have now because in games such as Super Mario, you have done that. You've done it in Rayman, in the Rayman games. Celeste is one of the examples where the developers actually posted and responded to that tweet by Jennifer Sherrill that I mentioned earlier and explained that they have implemented that. Because while Celeste is pretty hardcore in its difficulty, you know, it just feels fair. Because if you don't have that coyote time, then it feels almost as if the game is like unnecessarily meticulous in how precise you need to be. Yeah, I think, you know what, I'm, I can't think of an example, but I just feel in my bones that a game, a platformer or a jump and run that isn't good probably doesn't have this or it's not as pronounced would be my guess because i think you're right i think that's asking you to be too precise and it's not fun at that point i think that was the case with the more recent crash bandicoot games i'm not quite sure whether oh. that is true but i think people complained there you know you need to be so ridiculously precise in these games and that was yes that was strange and required of many people to get used to it at first because it didn't have the coyote time you're so right and what's strange is looking back on the original PlayStation 1 versions of those Crash Bandicoot games they definitely had that 
And I think you're right. I think the insane trilogy didn't. And that's why people had such a hard time with it. Yeah. One of the most pronounced examples that I can remember ever engaging with the Coyote time, that was, I think, in Tomb Raider, in the early Tomb Raider games, where, and this is only something that you would know if you are old enough to have played these original games, where (laughs) those games were 3D, right? And you had to be very precise in your jumps. But Lara Croft, she would always take like almost an entire like squared step. Like her steps were always like measured in these squares. And you could, of course, slow her down and take like a half square step. But her steps were pretty big. And so you needed a little bit of wiggle room where you would be able to jump off a box. It would be almost noticeable. You would jump off and you would think like, okay, her foot kind of just like, you know, pushed itself off of of thin air there (laughs) just now. Yeah, I think it's led to a lot of glitches too. Like I can think of um, right now I'm playing Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice. And there are a lot of, I think, unintended glitches that happen because of Coyote Time where you can kind of jump over certain obstacles, have bosses fall to their death without meaning to. So that's an example of kind of using the hidden mechanic to your advantage too. I'm sure that Elden Ring has Coyote Time as well. It's gotta be. At yeah. least when you're on the horse. <laughs> at least when you're on Torrent. Yeah. I think it must have. And Double Coyote Time. Double Coyote double Time, jump. yeah. Because you can double jump. <laughs> and it's it's just so cool because it's a hidden mechanic. It's something that's never really explained to you. There's no tutorial thing that says like, oh, and by the way, if you are like one millimeter beyond the platform, don't worry about it. It's just not explained because it feels so organic. It's totally unrealistic, but in the game, it just feels right. Yes. Well, speaking of feelings, how's that for a segue? Ah. I want to talk about affection points in the Final Fantasy series. Oh. Yes. Are you familiar with these? Yeah, yeah, I have engaged with them more or less consciously. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So if you've played Final Fantasy VII, the I'm going to say the original, but the remaster on the PS4, for example, there's actually a trophy that relates to this. So it's a little less than hidden now. But the first example that I can think of where these affection points came into play was in the original Final Fantasy VII, where depending on how you answer different characters, you determine who you go on a date with at the Gold Saucer Casino on the first disc. So It's usually going to be Aerith, because I think that's she has the most affection points, that hidden mechanic. But the next one would be Tifa. And after that, you can actually get to a point where you amass enough affection points with Yuffie and Barrett that you have a date with each of them. And those are both very funny. Barrett's especially is hilarious. What's interesting about this is that there's no indication it's truly hidden how these affection points add up. It all depends on different choices that you use in dialogue and i believe if you do certain things that are unnecessary like certain optional side quests in midgar you're able to kind of amass these points and have a funny scene (laughs) with a different person on a date they also adapted this for the remake right because there i remember while i have played final fantasy 7 the original and but not to its completion uh, though i was at that sequence i remember that but I most vividly remember that in Final Fantasy VII Remake, there can also be a, like a, it's not a real date, but it's like, a, it can be more or less romantic depending on the person, but it can be Aerith, but I think it's Aerith by default, and then it's Tifa mm-hmm. or Barrett, right? Yes, it's a cutscene that plays before the final mission. And I think what I really like about that is that, yes, it works on the same principle. There's still affection points, depends on what you say at different times, what subquests you go into in different chapters, but it's sort of like the final thoughts of this character before you go into a really 
difficult thing where, as you know, if you've played Remake, everything changes. So yes, it defaults to Aerith because that's the default relationship, but you can also have Tifa and Barrett. And what I like about the change is that Barrett's isn't funny like the date is in the original. It's really sincere about his thoughts about the planet and his daughter. And I think no matter who you get, it's a really touching scene. It is. I I mean, I definitely had... Wait, did I even have... I'm not sure whether I had Aerith or Tifa. I can't quite remember, but what I do find interesting is the fact that they made a deliberate decision to conceal the existence of these affection points. Yes. Because, of course, when you played the original, then you would be aware of this because that was a time before social media, before you could just simply go online and check out what's going on. You maybe had a guide where it was explained. I'm not sure whether it was explained in these original guide books. I'm not sure. Yeah. I could imagine that it was not even mentioned and that they made a deliberate decision to say, okay, we're going to implement this mechanic, but we're not going to tell anyone about it because the engagement is completely different. If you know about this mechanic, then what you're doing is instrumental play. You're going to say, okay, so who do I want to date? Who do I want to build a relationship with? And then imagine just hypothetically the scenario where if you make a choice, a dialogue choice or a side quest choice, and it says like, you know, Barrett plus one RP relationship point or affection point, AP, whatever, you know, then suddenly it's way more instrumental. Whereas if you conceal it entirely, it's more like, okay, so you do you Mm. as a player or as, you know, a player avatar, you make your choices, you play cloud how you want cloud to be. And in accordance to that, we're going to adjust the game. There's two things I want to talk about with that. First is, as you said, this was a time before social media. So when it came out in 1997, and even shortly thereafter, there were a lot of rumors about Final Fantasy VII. And we've talked before on the show about kind of playground rumors. And I never had this experience, but I guarantee you there were kids who played Final Fantasy VII and said, wasn't the date with Aerith magical? And then someone else said, no, it's Barrett. You go on a date with Barrett, you know? And then you kind of realize that there's something that you can change. The thing about instrumental play is that, let's say that you want to get the trophy for going on the date with Barrett in the remaster. You have to play instrumentally. So there's this added incentive that makes you aware of the hidden mechanic. There's no such trophy in the remake. That is entirely outside of the mechanics that you're aware of in any way. So I think it kind of did this wonderful thing where it recreated that magical kind of playground conversation where it's like, oh, no, I got Tifa. Oh, I got Barrett. That's really cool. You know, and it was this kind of thing that flared up on the Internet. I remember that because both of us, I think we played Final Fantasy VII Remake when it came out and there was a whole lot of discussion going on like nowadays. Basically, for those that were a little bit living behind the rock at the time, Final Fantasy VII Remake was pretty much what Elden Ring had been for the last couple of months. Like a lot of people (laughs) were talking about the different mechanics and the changes to the story. And I remember that there were articles popping up very quickly confirming that, yes, there are like hidden affection points in the remake as well, because people had figured that out. Yeah, it's something that I really appreciate because as you said, Stefan, there's a role-playing element to it. You get rewarded for having you know, saying what you want as cloud, which I think is really interesting. There's also an affection mechanic. It's not necessarily affection, although it's called that in Final Fantasy X, where different characters are predisposed to like Titus more <laughs> as they meet him. And then depending on how much you use them and what you do with them in the story, they kind of build affection that affects their fighting capabilities. This is not mentioned anywhere. It's not in the sphere grid. It's not a stat. Where it comes in most heavily is there's a summonable character named Yojimbo. 
And Yojimbo works entirely on this affection or luck stat, where you summon him by paying him a certain amount of money, and he does one of a few different attacks. Depending on which attack he does, he'll get more of these affection points, and the more affection points he does, the more likely he is to perform what's called Zanmato, which is an instant one-hit kill on any enemy in the game including the secret bosses that would otherwise take you two hours to beat. Yeah, the fantastic thing about this is that I platinumed Final Fantasy X twice, I think. Yeah. And I did not know this. I yeah. did not know of this. I knew of this trick with uh, Zanmato and with using Yojinbo. I operated among the lines of basically grinding and then using a whole lot of you need to give him a certain sum of money so that it's like a an 88 chance or whatever that he would use that particular attack i always thought of it like you're training him over time and you do it a couple of times so that you can reliably use it in those boss fights i was not aware that this is something that goes on with other characters as well and determines yeah it determines stats that influence combat as well yeah and Something that Final Fantasy does really well is that it's thematically relevant. So Yojimbo may be a little bit, maybe a little different, but for example, Riku, the girl character that you meet at the start of the game, she has the highest predisposition to Titus because if you think about their meeting, he didn't know about the whole difference in racial tension. And so he just accepted Riku as she was when he met her. So there's a lot of layering to that game where these affection points exist to sort of say, this is how people see the main character. It's really interesting. How much thought goes into that to determine, okay, so Riku is a character that is in this world racially discriminated against, but because in their encounter, the protagonist Titus doesn't know that and treats her very fairly and equally, and therefore she has higher affection points with him. Yeah. How intricate is that? That's just cool. It's great, yeah. I love when these hidden mechanics have that kind of thematic relevance to it. They definitely do that in Silent Hill 2 as well. There it's like strongly tied into the theme. Silent Hill 2, one of the most beloved horror games of all time, where you play as James Sunderland and you follow a letter from your deceased wife to go to the eponymous town of Silent Hill. And throughout this journey through Silent Hill, James is confronted by his trauma and his grief. And there are some things where you make obvious decisions that influence the way the story will play out. But what you wouldn't know unless you looked it up or unless you had heard of it before on a podcast such as this one <laughs> is that Silent Hill tracks player behavior secretly. Without telling you this, they record, for example, how you engage with the monsters. You would encounter a monster and then obviously you can fight against it and it will at a certain point fall to the ground. It will then, after a couple of seconds though, get back up. The only way to stop it from doing so is by giving it like a final execution hit in order to properly kill off that monster. Now, that is kind of a metric that is measured in the background. How many of these monsters have you executed, basically? How violent were you? And that will then determine the ending of the game. Without giving anything away, because I'm not big on spoiler warnings for games that have been out for 20 plus years, but <laughs> if you haven't played Silent Hill 2, you owe it to yourself to do that. The idea of how violent am I making James is very resonant with the themes of Silent Hill 2. Definitely. And it's so interesting that they have the same kind of principle of saying, we're not going to tell you about this. In 
most games, you know, we've seen throughout the development of video games and video game culture, we've seen something that's called the decision turn. And the decision turn kind of means to put a deliberate emphasis on moral choices and, you know, influences of players on how the story will develop. And these are most closely associated with titles like the Telltale games, Life is Strange, Quantic Dream games, you know, Heavy Rain, Indigo Prophecy, and so on. Usually you would have a very clear standout moment where it says like, hey, this is a choice you have to make. We're going to freeze time. We're going to display the different options. And we're going to very clearly code, think of Mass Effect, what is a good option, what is a bad option, how many good or bad points do you get, and Clementine will remember this. So it's clearly indicated that in your face that you're making, doing something that influences the course of the narrative. Whereas in Silent Hill 2, it was just like, nah, you know, you just, yeah. you role play and you have to, because you don't know this. So assume you're in this time where you don't have access to the internet immediately and you just kind of maybe you know some hearsay about this. That means since you cannot know which kind of behavior is tracked and what is not, you must act in the assumption that every single one of your actions will be recorded and will be held against you. <laughs> yes. It will influence the course of the story. And that is something that really incentivizes proper role play. And I think that one of the greatest things about, you mentioned the sort of final moment of execution. And I want to just illustrate, this is what that looks like. You'll encounter a monster that is bound by its arms and it's crawling on the ground. It'll lunge at you. So you attack it, you knock it on the ground, and then it'll start skittering away from you. If you go over to it, he doesn't just put a bullet in its head to end it. He violently stomps it to death. So Silent Hill 2 deliberately makes these things viscerally uncomfortable. I think the violence feels very real. That's something that Silent Hill is very good at, is here is an everyman going to this place and dealing with things in a very realistic fashion. And it leaves you feeling kind of ill at the end of it, especially when certain realizations come to light. Even before the end of the game, you start thinking, oh, I don't like what I did here. <laughs> it's very yeah. palpable. Yeah. Silent Hill 2, as abstract as it was at the time, I mean, it was an impressive technical feat for its time. But looking back on it, it's basically what was playing out in your head was what we now see when you would see The Last of Us Part 2 or something when it comes to the explicitness of violence, you know? Yeah. But this is something that really has a narrative significance. There are also a lot more of these hidden mechanics that are just neat, that are just interesting little tidbits. For example, what I found super interesting, you know, when you have a HP bar yeah. in a shooter game or an adventure game, then you would assume because that's just how math works, that every single HP point, one out of 100, that they are all worth the same, right? That's the entire implication of such a mathematical scale. However, it turns out that in many games, that's actually not true. In titles such as Assassin's Creed, in Far Cry 5, and also in Doom 2016, I suspect it's the case in Doom Eternal as well, though I haven't checked it out, but there it's actually the case that the last part of your HP bar let's say it's either the, the last point or maybe the last five points in your HP bar, they're actually worth more than they are indicated in order to get this feeling of, oh, I'm fighting, I'm fighting. Oh my God, my I'm almost going to die. Yes. Like yeah. this escaping, this near death moment to make that more intense and more likely to occur. 
Isn't that so cool? Because how many times have you been telling a story about a time you were playing a game and you said, and right at the last moment, I was able to pull it back. I was just going to die. And then I did it. And that feeling, it's kind of cool to know that it's almost manufactured and put in there for you. You know, that it's like, no, the game is with you. It's also saying it's the last push. Do it. Do it. (laughs) The game's kind of, yeah, it's kind of rooting for you. Yeah. It does two things really well. It makes you feel like there's really high tension But it also kind of rewards you for taking a chance because if you're at the point where you're maybe at the end of a boss fight or you're at the end of a really long firefight, you feel like you're, you know, all right, I'm nearly out of ammo. The only way I'm going to do this is if I rush them or if I, you know, take this crazy chance. It makes that more memorable, I think. Ah, that's also in Bioshock. It is even the case that one or two seconds, if you would normally die, you get one or two seconds of invincibility. So you have this kind of situation that enemies are firing at you and you're like, oh, and then you're like, you just about made it. And sometimes I think when I play a video game, sometimes it's noticeable that it occurs a little bit more than it would normally be statistically likely to occur. This kind of, I just about made it moment. Yeah, like sometimes I think of um, Gears of War, like how Gears of War has the blood kind of encroaching on the screen. Mm -hmm. Like that, that's a visual representation of it, I think, where it's like you're getting, things are getting really dire now. You have just one last chance, then maybe somebody can come and assist you. But I think that the games that don't point it out directly, but just have it happen are really cool. Ah, they cut you a little bit of slack there. You just mentioned the end of a firefight where you might have only like one bullet left. That's exactly what happens in System Shock, where the last bullet in a magazine will do double damage to enemies. Cool. Which obviously realistically makes no sense. But yeah, just to evoke that kind of feeling of your magazine's almost empty, you almost need to reload or you're almost entirely out of ammo. And with the last shot, you still get him. It's like movie logic. Yeah. You know, I only got one shot left. Got to make it count. You know, <laughs> think, makes me think of Eminem. You only got one shot. <laughs> one shot. <laughs> one system. But yeah, it's for the spectacle. It's Those are games that are there to kind of bring you into the moment where you are in a heated action sequence and they want to give you this kind of... It's spectacle that is there to create a story that you can tell afterwards. As you mentioned, where I can say, and it's just about survived, or I, I was running out of ammo. I couldn't believe that I still managed. It's great. I think this next one, this is one that you had brought up to me when we were kind of talking about this idea, which is the reduced initial accuracy, which also kind of contributes to this, but in a more kind of teachable way. Yeah. And this is the idea where I know in Spec Ops The Line, enemies start out with their accuracy set to zero. So if you're looking at all the numbers, the sliders for the different NPCs or the different enemy types, they're going to miss you when they first attack. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. In Spec Ops The Line, it's like always set in such a way that the default accuracy at the beginning is zero. So that enemies will always miss you. And I think in Half-Life, it is the same. So that The default setting is they will shoot at you, they will definitely miss so that you as a player are warned and that you can maybe, that you can react, that you can turn around quickly and ascertain where the enemy is shooting from. I think that's really cool because that's a great way to tutorialize you without, you could just as easily imagine a game popping up a screen and saying, enemies will shoot at you, try not to be hit. (laughs) (laughs) Enemies will shoot at you, but they will miss. But they sometimes, However, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, but only at first. 
you might realize. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> Actually, I read that oh. in Half-Life 2. That's something that's like kind of an additional fun fact to that. In Half-Life 2, if an enemy shoots at your player avatar and misses, the shot misses, then the game is programmed in such a way that the bullet will try to instead hit some kind of breakable object that is nearby so that you can more clearly notice you're being shot at and that it looks more spectacular. Like someone shoots and it's like, instead of just like a wall, it hits maybe like a barrel that's standing there or like a window that breaks, something that does some kind of effect so you properly feel attacked, you know? Yeah, so you're you're aware of it, but also, as you said, there's some sort of cinematic spectacle to it. Yeah. Like you just narrowly missed. Yeah, yeah, you're like running along there and you're being shot at, you're under fire, just this kind of cinematic experience. Well, I have one that's a little bit, it's it's a little bit of a left turn into more of the metagaming aspect of things. Oh. I imagine this is the one that you were referring to at the start of the episode. Quite possibly, <laughs> depending on what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Pokemon IV and EV yes, values. <laughs> that's exactly what I was talking about. Pokemon, the IV and EV system. Yes, individual values and effort values. So if you're an old man like us, <laughs> then, you, then you're probably saying, I don't know what this is. But for anybody new to Pokemon, this isn't really a new idea. But it was at one point. So in the Ruby and Sapphire games, the third generation of Pokemon, these were introduced as sort of, not sort of, they were hidden stats that determined how well your Pokemon was doing in battle. So all Pokemon have, you know, an attack stat, a speed stat, a defense stat, all that stuff. And certain Pokemon, not, not all Pokemon are created equal, it turns out, because <laughs> certain Pokemon have higher IVs, which are the individual values. These are inherent boosts that Pokemon have. So if you want to catch a Pikachu, there are odds that if you catch two Pikachus, they will not be the same because one might be speedier than the other. That's determined by their IV, their individual value. But there's also the effort value, which is a number that you can raise by doing certain training so that no matter what the base value of that stat is, you can actually make it better and get more points every time you level up. The way that they did that in the original game was really tedious. So let's say you wanted to raise your Pokemon's speed stat. You would have to go and kill about a thousand Zubats with whatever Pokemon you want to raise your speed stat with. So certain Pokemon had an associated effort value with them that when you defeated them, it would give a little bit of like EV experience points to your Pokemon. But it would not detail that, would it? Not at all. Yeah. No. The only way that you would notice this is every time you level up, they get different stat boosts. And you may notice if you happen to have killed a thousand Zubats just out of some sort of hatred for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you would notice that eventually, if the speed stat would have gone up by two, maybe now it's going up by four every level. So I think, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine that's how people reverse engineered this hidden mechanic. They saw that different Pokemon had different stats to start with, even though they were the same level. And... They were somehow leveling up differently. Now, I find this incredibly boring, <laughs> but I know a lot about it because I've played these games. And what I appreciate is that it's not so much a hidden mechanic anymore because in the later Pokemon games, they make it more of a noticeable stat and they make it much easier to train with certain mini games and items that you can give to your Pokemon to raise these values. Well, I'm going to tell you what I think about IV and EV values. <laughs> but before I do that, 
Let's take a little break. We'll be right back. Oh, suspenseful. (laughs) (laughs) A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And we are back talking about hidden mechanics. We just elaborated a little bit on the IV and the EV stat in Pokemon. So that would be individual values and what was EV effort values? Effort values, yes. And now the thrilling conclusion to Stefan's hot take. Yes, the thrilling conclusion that I had teased before the break is just that I feel, I, I mean, I don't like it. I'm not a big fan of the system. <laughs> sure. Primarily because to me, it makes the individual Pokemon more expendable. Yeah. When I started playing Pokemon, for me, it always felt like I had a special relationship to each and every Pokemon that I caught because I would raise them, I would nurture them. To me, it felt a little bit more like a Tamagotchi, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Whereas over time, and this was something that I know Arceus has introduced some different mechanics, but even if we exclude that, even if we go up to Sword and Shield, it kind of led into the direction of, hey, why don't you catch 50 Pikachus, then you can just take a quick look at this very simple spreadsheet where you can calculate, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. If the thing level is like this now, then what level will it be if it reaches 99? And then if you've done that and that, then they will appear as shiny Pikachus and there you can then do the same thing again. To me, it just feels like this is just min-maxing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's also... You kind of went a brighter way with it. Like, oh, I'm going to catch 50 Pikachus. Most of the time, the way that people do this is they get a ditto and they just breed a million Pikachus. So it's this weird, I don't want to get too dark, but it has this weird (laughs) eugenics tinge to it. It's very strange. 
you're building like the the uber pikachu <laughs> yeah yeah it's like nietzsche would be like ah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the super pikachu I mean, for people who are very much into Pokemon, I understand that lengthens the game by a considerable margin. But for you and I, it's just like, uh, but my Pikachu's special because I caught him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because because that Pikachu has been with me a long time, that Pikachu that I caught. And, you yeah. know, the same way I feel about all of these Pokemon. It's just, to me, it's just too many. I can't keep track of it. And I know there's some people who really love this. But to me, it's a little bit incomprehensible because... The Pokemon games, usually, they offer these extreme min-max rabbit holes, but they don't require you to do any of it at any point in the game. You're just doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, you have to go in and say, I want the perfect Pikachu, or like you've got different builds, and then (laughs) I need to look up what are the best base stat values for it, uh, for Pikachu, and where can I catch the ones that has the most EV, and how can I get it up? Yeah. It's just too much effort for me. It's just not, as you rightly pointed out, it's just not that complicated a game. You can get through the entire game, the post-game, everything. I would say the closest that I ever felt like, okay, these actually matter, was in Arceus, because Arceus was actually harder than a lot of other Pokemon games. So maybe if they take it more in that direction, I'll invest more into it, but I'm with you. I think it's just too much. Yeah. Either it needs to be the case that there's some kind of end game that would afford such a deep engagement, or, well, I guess there are people who are involved in, like, PvP stuff where this, like, matters if you want to play in some kind of upper special Pokemon professional tournaments. The Elite Four. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to (laughs) do that. But I think for the most people who play Pokemon, it's just not that relevant. And for that, I think it's a bit too intrusive. Well, I have one that's another one that is, it's kind of in the same vein, but I think it's a little more reasonable. So in Bloodborne, you know, there's all the different trick weapons, right? Yes. Yes. There's actually a couple of different hidden mechanics within that, that I think you don't need to know about, but if you do... I do think it enhances your play style. Well, maybe we should first say that the trick weapons are usually the ones that you you get them and they're like weapons that you can transform. Yes. So they're specifically designed by the hunters in the world of Bloodborne to be used against beasts. And so they're trick weapons in the sense that they have one form for one hand and then another form for two-handed. They have different move sets and things like that. Pretty versatile, but also pretty understandable, I would say. Like the saw cleaver, the first weapon that you get is a trick weapon that you can use pretty much throughout the entire game and be perfectly happy with it. That's the cool thing, is that any weapon you use, you you can use it the entire time. Bloodborne is, I think, pretty balanced in that way. But there are definite ways to break it by using the different mechanics that aren't explicitly given to you. So one of these mechanics is that the base trick weapons, some of them are serrated, And then others are what are called righteous. And these are two damage modifiers that work better against different enemy types. So a serrated weapon will do better against a beast enemy because the idea is that you're drawing more blood from it because it's serrated. And a righteous weapon, if you think about like a holy paladin weapon, it's going to be used more against enemies from the healing church, which are the more kind of dark, I guess, demonic sort of otherworldly entities that exist in this world. So in that way, it's kind of a cool narrative thing because the hunters made different weapons for different occasions. As you were saying, like, okay, a serrated weapon would be better against these werewolves and a righteous weapon would be better against these weird alien things. But the weird thing about it is that 
even though I've platinumed Bloodborne, I can't quite recall. This is never mentioned nor explained, is it? No, never. I think you can look at the damage modifiers and kind of come to that conclusion, but it's not, it doesn't say in the description, this is a serrated weapon or this is a righteous weapon. But the nice thing about it, it just feels organically believable because probably you have the weapon and either by its aesthetics or by the little bit of lore pieces that you know about it that you can read in the item description you might figure okay that's a weapon that might be super effective against that kind of type of enemy yes and it goes even deeper than that in bloodborne as you can go deeper into the thumerian chalice dungeons which are completely optional randomly generated dungeons in the game. If you go into these, you can find these items that are called uncanny and lost weapons. And these are different versions of the trick weapons. The only real difference that they have is that they have different modification slots. So there are items in the game called gems that you can use to kind of enhance your attack power, enhance bleeding damage. And not all of the weapons have the same fitted gems. It's almost like materia slots in Final Fantasy. Yeah. But an uncanny weapon will have different shaped slots than a lost weapon and the same is said of the normal weapons. So if you're going for a particular build, but you can't use a gem that you want to use in the normal weapon, well, you might be able to use it in the uncanny version. And so it's just this level of depth that I think is cool because it's not so insane that you can't grasp it. And you also don't need it at all to play the game normally. Yeah, I think that's what's the cool thing about it. You don't have to pay any particular attention to it if you don't want to. But if you want to go all the way through these chalice dungeons, which requires a lot of, you know, at least a little bit of metagaming engagement anyway, if you are that yeah. determined, then it's perfectly fine to give this optional layer of depth. It's honestly just impressive how much time and effort also goes into such details, into conceptualizing them, into designing them, just to then conceal them from players. You know, it's kind of the opposite of what most games want to do. It makes these games less transparent. Ubisoft games, for example. Ubisoft games, they usually are very transparent in that when you open the map and you have these hundreds of question markers, where you can, you know, like trigger side quests and small collectibles and stuff, you can often see on the map already or at the beginning of a side quest what kind of reward exactly you're going to get. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think Ubisoft titles do that to encourage you to go do the side stuff, this stuff that you might not have to do. Look at what you'll get if you do this, this tedious, <laughs> like, walking mission. But Bloodborne, again, with form kind of meeting function, it rewards you for doing what the game warns you against doing, which is indulging in your obsession of knowledge and trying to get more out of something. So it kind of rewards you, but it also makes it that much more complicated when you try to get things to make sense. Yeah, without telling you this is the result, but with just telling you like, hey, this is something that you can do. And if you engage in it long enough and deeply enough, then at a certain point, you're just going to be like, oh, wait, this looks interesting. Maybe I'll try it out. And you're like, hmm, this kind of, this weapon is kind of cool. It seems super effective. I don't quite understand why, maybe, but it is the case, you know? Something about it. Yep. Yeah, there's just something about it. I think Bloodborne might be a good game. It might be. It might, might be. be. Might be a, <laughs> a recommendable game, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are also a lot of these, like, small things that we still got in our sheet that are just there to make games feel more satisfying. Quite a couple of them we've already addressed, but just 
but some quickfire examples that I stumbled upon. One is that in Uncharted 2, you often have the situation that Nathan Drake, the Indiana Jones-inspired adventurer, will have to run through a collapsing building and jump up off of it, or in the opening sequence even, where he has to climb up a train that hangs off of a cliff and he needs to make the leap just as the train slides off and he just about makes it. And the way they did that is they made the player movement connected to the speed in which things would collapse so that if the train is sliding off the cliff and the game recognizes that you are like a little bit confused or you're running in the wrong direction, then they will slow down the animation of the train collapsing. The same goes for you run across a bridge. I remember a very memorable sequence in Uncharted 2 where you run across a bridge and you have to jump off and the, the bridge collapses under you. If you take a wrong turn or if you like get stuck in the wall a little bit, it will take slightly longer. It, you don't have infinite time. There is time pressure there, but they will just say like, okay, let's half the speed for like a couple of seconds. So you have time to reorient yourself and then we'll make it so that just as you're about to jump off, then we'll make the final collapse. To me, that's really cool because it puts me in the mind of the game developer. And I think the win state in this scenario is seeing something cool or experiencing a really cool movie moment. They do that so well. Orchestrating a cinematographic moment. That's what it's all about in these cases. In others, it's more pragmatic. Like in DMC, much beloved game for me, much hated game for others. <laughs> yes, you're, you're, <laughs> you're the opposite. Of most <laughs> yes, of I'm, I'm the opposite of what <laughs> most people think of the, of the Devil May Cry series. But Devil May Cry obviously is a very fast-paced game where you're constantly slaughtering a whole lot of demons and you have to be very quick on your feet and very quick with your reactions. Now, the thing is, it is a problem if enemies surround you. And in order to prevent that from happening, what the game actually does is that if an enemy is off screen, so if you're not looking at the enemy, then their attacks will be slowed down so that they don't come in from behind and just hit you and interrupt your combo. Yeah, because you want to be stylish and cool and be in the flow of combo and not, not suddenly have some demon come running in and like just give you like a random <laughs> attack in the back. You know, that reminds me of, um, this isn't so much a hidden mechanic as it is kind of like a video game trick, which I really like. And it, it's in the same vein, which is in games like in the PS2 era, PS2, Xbox, that kind of time, two games I can think of, the Path of Neo, the Matrix game, and then Kingdom Hearts 2, they both have these sequences where there are thousands of enemies surrounding you. And the way that they set it up is that really only about five to ten of them are attacking you at once and the rest of them are just kind of dancing and driving yeah. in the background <laughs> they're just like stalling just like you know in the yeah. ready to attack position <laughs> yes yeah. let's wait until he's defeated yeah. the other guys <laughs> that's right yeah they're, they're very polite and i love that it makes it feel like you are surrounded without it being unfair yeah that's cool in movies as well if you, if yeah. you see like some kind of like older action movies the best They're thing, all just waiting there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The best thing is looking in the fighting sequence, not at the action, but looking at the other like three actors that are in the background and that are just like stalling <laughs> before yeah, attacking. There's that, there's that great story of, um, I think, Jonathan Reese davies the guy who plays Gimli in Lord of the Rings. Mm. They would say like, oh, they, were, they would have all this choreography planned out for Gimli and he would say, no, no, you 
come at me, I'll hit you with the axe. Then you come at me, I'll hit you with the axe. And it's just one after the other. <laughs> yeah, it's like these old like Bud Spencer films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where you always have like one coming in after another and they all like just like slapped yeah. around. Very polite uh, villains. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very kind. <laughs> There's one example, at least, that I could find where this even affects multiplayer. Because normally, in multiplayer games, it's important to have a high degree of transparency. Because you want things to be fair, you want people to understand what's going on, and you want to allow everyone to have a satisfying experience. However, it can get pretty frustrating if you play a shooter such as Gears of War, and that is exactly the studio that has confirmed this, you jump into Gears of War multiplayer and other people are a lot more advanced than you are. So you come into a party and you just get immediately killed. So what they found out, according to their internal metrics, is that 90% of players stopped playing the multiplayer if they did not get a single kill in their first game. You jump in, you get slaughtered over and over again. You have no sense of accomplishment. Can't get better. Then the round ends. Essential life experience. That's right. <laughs> just get beaten down before you have a chance. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because what they do in order to compensate for that is they give initial players that play their first round a damage boost for their first few rounds just so that they can get in a couple of kills. And then over time, as the person progresses in the matches, that boost wears off so that they don't notice that they're getting weaker. But yeah, they just like have the satisfying experience and then kind of the player skill is sufficiently trained that kicks in that you can actually make a difference in these uh, combat situations. Yeah, I got excited because I, I think that that's a really smart way to do multiplayer, especially I'm not very good in shooting games. You know, I'm, I'm just not like Halo, Gears of War. But I like that they kind of have that buffer zone so that you can still have fun before you say, all right, this isn't fun anymore. <laughs> I'm just getting totally destroyed by my friends. Is there a good word for this in English? Because in German, there is a term. It is Welpenschutz, which is kind of, you know, a Welpe is a, a puppy. It's like puppy protection. And oh, when, whenever you engage, this goes for games, but also goes for any other kind of field. Like if you're a, a first year student, and you miss to register for a deadline or you kind of, you know, your term paper, your first term paper, that's how it is for us at least, the grade doesn't count anyway, like your very first term paper, but you also be graded with a little bit more, you know, you have like this invisible bonus kind of. It's okay, it's a first year student term paper, so we don't grade it as harshly as a second year term paper. I can think of two that would apply. The first would be treating you with kids' gloves, mm. and then the other would be like having the training wheels on. Yeah, the training wheels. That makes perfect sense to me. I think it doesn't need to be a hidden mechanic, though, because what we already mentioned is that in multiplayer games, it's important that things are transparent, so you know what's going on. And I think, for example, when I jumped into the Battlefield games, I played Battlefield 3 and Battlefield 4 for quite a while in competitive multiplayer I think it would be fine to just have some kind of indicator briefly at the beginning that for the first five levels, either the matchmaking must be made in such a way that the first five levels are like contained within itself so that no higher level players can enter these matches. That is a pretty common thing. Or there needs to be some kind of like small badge or some kind of small icon that indicates to me basically like you have this kind of buff at the moment to just, you know, have your training wheels on, explore the game enjoy a little bit, figure out the mechanics in your own time. You're not under that much pressure. And then we'll take it off as soon as you're ready. And then you can properly fight, basically. MMORPGs also do this. 
I think the best example of it is in Final Fantasy XIV. If you started today, there's so much content in that game that you've missed. And what I like is that if you do start, often what they'll do is they'll have particular servers that will give you an experience buff so that you can level up quicker. You can still enjoy it, but it doesn't feel like you're cheating. It doesn't feel like a level boost to get to the max level. It just feels like you're accelerated, so you're still engaging, but not you're not at such a disadvantage to take all the time to get to where everybody else is. Little things like that that have become less hidden, I think, are kind of cool. Yeah, it also fosters more social engagement if you're in a raid together or whatever, and you have some kind of boost for very low-level players. So friends can still play together and enjoy themselves without having to worry too much about level differences. And what I really appreciate, this is, I don't think in the World of Warcraft community, but in the Final Fantasy XIV community, people are often very kind if you have a little sprout above your head that shows that you're new you know if you go into a raid with them they'll say you have to do x y and z this is what we do in this one it's it's a nice little bonus ah that is so cute many of these hidden mechanics are really helpful they either help to make the experience of play more spectacular more engaging but they can also go into the direction of really influencing the way the narrative unfolds and they can make a game almost feel mystical because at the very beginning of this episode i briefly mentioned the term of the black box the black box is something where the signal is put in it's processed in some unknown way and then you can observe the results and you don't know what's going on within that black box though and sometimes it's really cool to have a black box where you just don't know exactly. You, maybe I don't want to know the rewards of what I'm going to get for the side quest, but I want to do the side quest for the purpose of doing it or because I feel like the narrative design compels me and my character to do this side quest, to help out this NPC, for example. I think in such incidents, these narrative, narratively framed hidden mechanics, they fit in best. And I think you just get the more enjoyment out of them because... It's like with the black box example, something clicks and you feel like you kind of, you're in on the secret. It's cool. Thank you so very much for listening. Please let us know what your favorite examples of hidden mechanics are. If you want to tell us about them, then you can go to studyingpixels.com contact. Of course, we would be super happy if you would decide to support the show. You can do so by going to studyingpixels.com plus, and we will then talk again next week. See you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.